0: This is a true story about faith, fun, poverty, identity, mental illness, and resilience, all centered around a drug-dealing toddler. Welcome to the Breaking Good Podcast. This podcast is made possible by the Louisville Institute. Special thanks to the Western Indiana Community Foundation Gramellion County Community Foundation, and the Collegeville Institute. And special thanks to Mark Bennett, journalist at the Terre Haute Tribune Star. Except for Judith Dana Lumen Trent, her father and her mother, all legal names, street names, identifying details of living characters have been changed or composited to protect their privacy. Welcome back to the Breaking Good Podcast. Thanks for joining us for Episode 2. In Episode 1, we met Dana from Dana, Indiana, born in East LA, champion jitterbugger, heir to multi-generational Midwestern stories, and daughter of two Christian miracle-chasing parents who, we are learning, struggled with mental illness.
1: Everyone called my father King, and he was very unconventional, and he was also very smart. He had both street smarts and book smarts. He was a fiercely loyal friend, an accomplished class clown, a performer an entertainer. He had the ability to adopt anyone's persona. And in that way, he was larger than life, which makes it really hard to describe Rick Lumen. But when I'm home and I say his name, People in Dana, people anywhere in Vermilion County light up. And there's a reason for that. In the same way when you talk to folks who knew my mother when she was young, people light up when you say her name. Dad was a rebel, Mom was a beauty queen, and they were both charmers. They were also both very faithful Christians. And in many ways, I think it was their faith that kept them afloat on their toughest days. Mom was more reserved in her Christianity, but dad was all out in his fervor. He glued crucifixes to the dashboards of every car he drove, even if they weren't his own car. (laughs) He had a statue of Mary Magdalene outside his trailer door that he would touch when he walked in the door and touch when he walked out the door to receive her blessing. He kept a King James Bible open on the kitchen counter right next to the razor blades. My father grew up in the Dana Community Bible Church, which his parents and their friends chartered in the 1950s. And my grandparents took their three boys to church every Sunday. You know, growing up in the 1950s and 60s, my father attended Sunday school and church camp. He loved the faith, but most of all, he loved watching people practice their faith. And he got a real kick out of pushing the envelope at church. He would ask provocative questions in Sunday school, and he even played Louie Louie on the organ at church camp (laughs) until he got caught.
0: Tonight,
2: I would like to invite your attention to the Gospel of Mark chapter 5. I am preaching a special message tonight on demon possession.
0: And if you have ever been reverent in your life, be reverent now.
2: For this is the night I always ask God in a special manner to protect me. For I am invading the demon world by the spirit and the gospel of Jesus of Nazareth.
0: And I always implore him to stand by me. I'm reading now from the gospel of Mark chapter 5. He loved
1: community, prayer, and spiritual practice. And in many ways, he was far more religious than my mother. And in my early life, he ensured that I said my prayers and that I read the Bible. And he and my mother both watched Dr. Schuler's Hour of Power from the Crystal Cathedral, even when they returned home to Dana, Indiana from California.
2: I had a family that came into to me one day for counseling. I'll never forget them. And they were both very tense, very, very, very uptight, as you say. And I said to these good people, I said, look, First of all, don't be afraid of the fact that you have a problem. Don't be afraid of this. It isn't the problems that bother us. It's our fear of the problems. And it's our worry about what the problems will do to us. You can determine what the problem will do to you. You can. This can be the greatest opportunity of your life. And the man said, I don't see how it could be. I said, very simply. Do you believe in God? He said, well, I don't know to a degree or we wouldn't be here. I said to the wife, have have you ever had the joy of giving your life to Jesus Christ? And she said, well, I'm not sure I know what you mean. I said, look, if this problem leads you to God, if it leads you to Jesus Christ, if it leads you to make a change deep within yourself so that you are no longer A selfish person, but a Christ-centered person. It's going to be the greatest thing that ever happened. Those two people, transformed people. They've changed. Freud was wrong. Marx was wrong. Jesus Christ was right. When you let God come in, everything Everything, everything, changes. Everything.
0: So Dana's parents were highly influenced by the theology of televangelist Reverend Robert Schuller, which in turn was associated with Norman Vincent Peale, a strong advocate of the optimistic disposition and its daily cultivation. In addition to this influence, 1950 style church and theology was alive and well in Vermilion County, When Dana's parents weren't well enough to take her to church, her grandparents ensured that she and her two cousins were there every Sunday. So there's an interesting mix of theological influences at play here, one with an introspective mental self-management component, and the other a personable, community-related, yet formal and conservative component.
1: Toward the end of my father's life, he actually called himself a monk. And, you know, sometimes he was joking and sometimes he wasn't. And he certainly had all the leadership qualities, you know, to have been a successful preacher. But his friends thought thought of him more as a prophet. And that's because he was always saying these outrageous things that actually proved to be useful and true. And he always had an entourage of disciples with him. From his Town of Dana days when he ran a street gang to his college days at Indiana State University. While at Indiana State University in Terre Haute, according to his friends, he drove a black hearse and he wore a uniform every day. And his uniform was an olive green t-shirt with a pocket, shoes with no socks, matching pants with no underwear, and a dark green corduroy jacket. He was tall and lanky with combed back, thinning hair, And he was often flanked by a person on each side and at least three people behind him. And he always carried a briefcase. So when you approached him to say, hey, can we catch up? He would say to his friends, you know, see me in my office at 2 o'clock. And you'd soon find out that his office was on the third floor stacks of Cunningham Library on the ISU campus. And that's where he would talk to his friends and his entourage about overthrowing the administration and participating in riots. He studied psychology and recreational therapy and ultimately he earned a graduate degree and became certified as a rec therapist. So my father was someone who was paid to play, and he was really good at it. He cared for people with mental illnesses and intellectual disabilities throughout his career in recreation. And he did this through games, fun, sports, jokes, you know, field trips and outings. Both of my parents were exceptional at their mental health jobs because they were people who themselves had severe mental illnesses. They were wounded healers.
0: So let me go back. Your father carried a briefcase around in college. What was in that briefcase? A notebook, a pencil,
1: and a jockstrap.
0: A jockstrap?
1: Yes, (laughs) required for his PE class, which actually was a dance class. And he had told the dance teacher that he'd been shot in the butt while serving as a Marine. And apparently he limped around every dance class the entire semester. And he'd chosen his rear end as the site of his injury, so that he'd never have to show, you know, the wound or the scar as proof to his story. So, which is brilliant, right? I mean, there's there's the street smarts and the book smarts. And in fact, the dance professor really liked him. And when she ran into one of my father's friends on campus, she said, oh, you know, I have a good friend of yours in my social dance class. You know, the guy who was injured in service, Richard? He's done such an excellent job considering he was shot. My dad's friend was surprised. And when they were telling me this story, The friend said to me, you know, who could remember to limp through an entire dance class all semester An entertainer, that's who. He was an entertainer and as far back as I can tell, playing and laughing were some of the ways in which he coped with his illness, in addition to his substance use. People loved my father very, very much, and he loved them. He was a people person, and he taught me to show interest in people's lives. He taught me how to be a good listener and how to help people feel comfortable sharing whatever they want to share. And as a result, he had more friends than you could shake a stick at. He never, ever met a stranger. And if you were his friend, you were his friend for life. But oh my goodness, if you backed him into a corner or you threatened the well-being of one of his friends, watch out. That's when you would see the cold, fierce, manipulative, and angry side of my father. All these traits are a mixed bag, I, th- I think. You know, some, sometimes they were helpful, sometimes they weren't. You know, but in the times when he was being helpful, like when he impersonated a college advisor to keep his good friend from flunking out of school, or when he impersonated a psychiatrist to protect a female friend from an abusive boyfriend, he was using the best of all of his traits to help people.
0: So it's it's really interesting. Your parents both struggled with wh- mental illness, but were also college-educated psychiatric professionals. Tell me more about your father's life and career after college, maybe before he met your mother.
1: Dad bounced around in school and internships and jobs. He even worked in Georgia for a short while. But when he finally finished school and settled in Ohio, he was working in inpatient psychiatric services, which, you know, some of those services don't even exist today. And But when he was... Inside the psych hospital with his patients, he was happy. He had a good job. The patients loved him because he threw great parties and he helped them feel whole. You know, like like a human being, like themselves, capable of laughing and playing and being liked. And they were feeling this in a time in their lives when they felt like everyone was against them. The doctors, the nurses, you know, even their own families. King and my mom, you know, both knew what it felt like to be patient. They knew what it felt like to be an outsider, to be sick, to feel like the world was against you. And in his mind, Dad knew that everyone needed the right escape. Either it was a good story or a road trip, it was some kind of mental or physical adventure. And my mother was absolutely the opposite. She believed in a good cry, a nap, or dessert. My dad's friends love to tell the story about the time that he took a group of inpatients to a professional baseball game and when the game was over they were headed back to the hospital but the van wouldn't start and it was dark and all of the mechanics you know had already closed but there was no 24-7 towing in those days so he just told his patients to go do whatever they wanted and to you know meet him back at the van at sunrise and freedom was something his patients didn't have. In fact, it would have been the most valuable thing to them in that moment. And my father knew that, so they were absolutely elated. All of his patients went their own separate ways, including my dad. And sure enough, everyone was back at the van at sunrise, and they had all had the time of their lives, my father included. There is no telling what they and he did that night, but he had given them the golden ticket.
0: So what happened to your dad's work, his career, when your parents moved to L.A. from Ohio?
1: My parents arrived in L.A. in the spring of 1980, and they left in the summer of 81. And according to my mother, my father spent a lot of time hiking up behind the Hollywood sign and doing drugs with the people he met out there. Um, You know, this was 40 years ago before high-tech security cameras, so maybe you could get away with that um, then. But he, dad, told folks back home that he'd actually become a Hollywood director. But the truth is that the closest the two of them got to the movie stars was when my mother got a part-time job as a nurse at Lawson Cena's celebrity rehab facility. And they had, you know, followed Dr. Schuler's advice that life could be different, better, and wonderful, and that they could become the kind of people they wanted to be. But the truth is that you know, though they had a change of geography, and though they thought that change of geography would change the environment in their minds, that wasn't the case. When they arrived in LA, they were exactly who they'd been in Ohio, only they were broke. But they did get their golden ticket, their daughter. You know, looking back on it, I admire their courage in so many ways. They were fearless. I am the age now that my mother was when she moved to LA. But my parents were always chasing the next thing, the next buck, the next opportunity, which ultimately led to them having to traffic drugs. They were desperate to make money. When my parents moved back to Dana, neither one of them worked a traditional full-time job, despite both having, you know, college degrees and training in their field. I think they were tired, you know, tired and depressed and overwhelmed. Maybe, you know, they felt defeated or embarrassed. It must have been hard to cash in everything for your dreams, to find your daughter in LA and then have to return home broke. My dad kept me when I was little and my mom worked part-time nursing jobs. Dad even mowed the grass at a golf course just once a week and my mom had to pick up his check on Fridays so he wouldn't spend it. He told everyone in town that he had retired from the state of Ohio, which was technically true. And my mom worked 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. nursing shifts, which was her very favorite shift. Family and friends tell me stories of those early years, that my dad and I were thick as thieves and that he was really, really good with me and just loved me so much. I remember, you know, folks telling me that he exercised my legs to make me stronger. And then before I could hold a razor blade, he actually duct tape my hands to my bottle to strengthen my biceps and to teach me how to bring my bottle to my mouth and create muscle memory. And that was all part of this early upbringing, you know, ages three months to six years old. You know, all that time was about grooming me as his junior, a strong young girl who would be street smart and hopefully book smart, but also a little girl who could protect herself and him during, you know, what would ultimately become drug drops. So as soon as my toddler fingers were big enough to hold a razor blade, he began training me up. You know, he. He taught me how to use it so I could help him chop and cut weed for the family business, which was trafficking drugs.
0: So I asked Dana to talk a little bit more about what she remembers about her father's drug trafficking business as a child, as a toddler.
1: We stacked green plastic wrapped bricks floor to ceiling behind the mirrored closet of the back bedroom. King, my father, would pull out a handful of dollhouse-like trees from one of those bricks and place them on the scratched up trailer kitchen counter. He set me up on a tattered faux leather stool, I was so excited, it had been repaired with duct tape so it was kind of sticky, and he inched me closer to the kitchen counter. And I was short, so I had to get up on my knees to reach the top of the counter, and he would sit across from me, cupping his right hand over my left hand, teaching me how to use a razor blade. It was hard to drag a razor blade across that kitchen counter without snagging it on an old scratch. I can still feel that razor snag, like nails on a chalkboard. Every day we separated the seeds from the marijuana flower, I piled my seeds up on my side of the counter waiting for his approval, and my hands were always sticky, sweaty, and sore from holding razor blades all day. But this was my role in the assembly line of our drug trafficking business. Since I was only three or so, Dad kept me calm and focused by blowing smoke in my face. He'd take a toke, and I'd put my face up to his and catch his exhale. We sorted and stuffed kilos into the fiberglass carcasses of kiddie rides, those hydraulic horses that kids ride outside the Kmart for a quarter. When I was old enough to accompany him on drops, my father christened me with the street name Budgie, after the small parakeet that people commonly keep as pets. I stood guard on site during drops while King charismatically chain-smoked joints and wooed dealers and clients. We both cruised through the war on drugs like an invisible Mack truck accelerating ahead of the law with our fuzzbuster, our white skin, and our charm. My father knew the value of an hour. 60 minutes of Sunday school would teach his preschooler B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. And 60 minutes could also earn us $2,400 on a quick drop after worship. Like church, Drug transit had its own commandments. No written notes, keep your eyes open, watch for plain wrapper pigs, which are unmarked cop cars, maintain a mean face, have a weapon ready at all times, even if it's a makeshift one, be ready to explode. Dad gave me special instructions to give every trucker we passed the middle finger. We're on a tight schedule, he used to say, stroking his beard with clenched teeth, mocking country club elitists. When my dad returned to Dana, Indiana after I was born, I think he thought he had found his new calling. It was a kind of recreational therapy, anointing the poor, the mentally ill, the bored, anyone desperate for an escape, with the balm of cannabis. But my mother had wanted to expand the business. She wanted to move out to a farmhouse in the country. She wanted to store more inventory, but my dad just didn't have the entrepreneurial spirit for that. I think the divorce is when these drug drops finally became a point of contention for them. My parents had two very different philosophies on parenting and who I should become. Budgie was my dad's fledgling drug dealer, poised to inherit his empire. And Revy was my mother's evangelical Christian do-gooder minister, poised to help her the rest of her life.
0: Wow. So what else did your father teach you?
1: You know, my dad always wore Vaseline all over his face because for him, it was the difference between life and death. And so he taught me to smear Vaseline on my face because the slippery element of Vaseline keeps your opponent from getting in a good hit. You know, and even if they do, the skin is less likely to tear. Or if you get cut, you know, God forbid, Vaseline can help stop the bleeding. You know, and even after I moved to North Carolina, I wore Vaseline on my face every day until high school, which is embarrassing now. I just didn't know any better. Well, looking back, I think my father was forcing me to engage in some version of terror management. My father was playful and jovial, but he was also really wise. You know, he sensed that I was going to be an emotional, vulnerable kid. And from his point of view, you know, that early, I was going to live in the Midwest for the rest of my life. And so he wanted to teach me how to navigate my own childhood based on his childhood experiences in the 1950s and 60s. He believed that there were good and rotten people out there. And you had to know the difference between the two. In some ways, this was very cultural. The ethos of the Midwest is very different from the South or the Northeast or even the West Coast. My mother had been raised in a Southern, you know, genteel culture that was passive aggressive. But my father was raised in a gritty culture that was direct. He was also raised at a time when kids, you know, and sometimes adults were mean and physically dangerous. And he wanted me to know that there were villains out there. You know, he wanted me to know the difference between a hero and a villain, and that you have to use your instincts to determine which is which. But King always said that until you develop those instincts, You have to move around the world like everyone is your enemy or everyone is an idiot. That's how he and his brother ran their street gang. They had to determine who was in and who was out, who was loyal and who was not. And this is how King trained me up, to be on constant alert and to assume that everyone is dangerous until they prove you wrong. I think his illness, of course, you know, played into some paranoia on his part. But he was also very wise in teaching his little runt daughter to defend herself in a mean world. You know, on a funny note, He was so paranoid one summer that he showed up at a friend's house in a taxi with a three-piece suit on in mid-July with $10,000 stuffed inside his jacket. And he was ranting and raving and declaring that the feds were after him. And so his friend was kind enough to drive him around and get him home. And my dad hid in a cornfield and slept there overnight until he could sneak back into our trailer up through a trap door he'd cut in the kitchen floor. My father's rigorous attention to danger was almost militaristic. You know, identify and take down the enemy by any means necessary, which is really ironic because my father was a Marine who disliked authority and regimen, and he really hated his time in the service. You know, he had been sent to Culver Military Academy in Indiana when he was a teenager, and I think it's partly because his parents had a hard time reining him in. And then as an adult, he dodged the Vermillion County Draft Board as long as he could until he was finally required to enlist in the reserves, and he did his boot camp time at Camp Pendleton. Out there, he was ultimately put in the brig, Marine Prison, at Camp Pendleton. For God knows what, you know, maybe impersonating officers. But the letters that he wrote home from that time, oh, they just get more and more pitiful and psychotic and paranoid, you know, the longer he was out there. I have those letters and, you know, some of them towards the end of his time are just, they're not even legible. Allegedly, he was put in the hot box, which is, you know, a metal coffin of sorts, a torture device, while his officers held lighters to his feet. He was eventually given an honorable discharge and VA benefits because he said that President Nixon wrote a letter on his behalf. Now, you know, no one has ever seen that letter, but he did get his discharge, and he did get his veterans' benefits. He was considered a vet.
0: You used a, a particular term earlier, and that term was terror management which is the idea that humans are acutely yet subconsciously aware of both the inevitability and unpredictability of death. And alongside that awareness of death, humans have an instinct towards self-preservation. So this, this combination gives rise to a form of terror. And terror management theory suggests that humans manage this terror through escapism, through certain beliefs that give life more enduring meaning and value. So I'm a little afraid, maybe a little terrorized to ask, um, what else was involved in your dad's attempts to help you manage your terror? Sammy Terry. I'm afraid to ask, what's Sammy Terry? (laughs)
2: Good evening. Welcome to two maddening hours of horror and fright. I am Sammy Terry.
1: (laughs) Sammy Terry. Cemetery was an Indiana TV star who hosted this Friday night horror movie program on one of the local networks. My father loved Sammy Terry. I found him completely terrifying. You know, Sammy Terry was a poor man's tales from the crypt. He was like the Hoosier crypt keeper. But my father knew that, you know, if he could just get me to listen to Sammy Terry and not be scared – King would be teaching me to stand up in the face of strangers.
0: So where was your mom during, during all this?
1: She worked odd jobs and shifts as a nurse, and she stayed in bed most of the time when she was home. I have old Polaroids of her in my parents' king-size bed in the back room of our trailer. And she'd sit up in bed and watch Johnny Carson and cross-stitch or eat a meal on a tray. And my dad waited on her constantly. But she's almost a ghost during those times. I have her letters that she sent home too, and she typed those on her Smith Corona typewriter. She really wanted to be independent and not have to work. She wanted to start a small mail order business and had even ordered the stationery with her initials on it. But she never did it. She was was a visionary but she often lacked what she called, you know, the get up and go. In fact, she would say, you know, my get up and go done got up and went. But she could turn her mania on when she needed it to survive. During those years, she was in bed, and honestly, you know, her staying in that back bedroom in bed had a purpose. She was a guard dog of sorts, you know, watching the stacks of brick inventory, you know, behind their mirrored closet doors. But she smoked with my dad, so she was a bit out of it. One night I woke up from sleeping to the smell of blueberry muffins, which are my absolute favorite. you know, it was probably midnight. So I, I thought it was unusual, but it was exciting. You know, my mom made blueberry muffins for me, my favorite. But I went into their bedroom and it was really just a sweatshirt with a blue sailboat on the front. She'd thrown it over her bedroom lamp for ambiance and that sweatshirt was burning.
0: So when you turned six, your, your parents divorced. How did your how did your mom kind of deal with that um, as she became the, your, your primary parent?
1: She could magically flip on a switch and turn on her mania to survive. When it was life or death, my mother could dig herself out of a hole if she had to, and she did it for herself and for the two of us many, many times, from their sudden divorce when I was six to her filing bankruptcy when I was 12. Otherwise, it was really hard for her to you know, have to get up and go. But when she was backed into a corner, much like King, she was ready to go. Everything was a cycle with my parents. Starting fresh with clean slates was their MO, and I think it was a mark of their illnesses too. They both had a sort of burn it down mentality and coping mechanism. Their lives were composed of like popsicle structures, you know, enthusiastic but brittle. They built things that worked until they didn't, and when they could no longer function in that structure, You know, it collapsed or they burned it down. And then they built something new. The two of them reinvented themselves so many times if you think about it. They had extraordinarily fascinating lives. I don't think it was a surprise to their families that every few years they were on to something new. But as I learn more about them, it's fascinating to me. It's like their mental illnesses, mania in this case, was actually a superpower. When they hit rock bottom, they tapped into this mystical force to start all over again. You see this in their fresh start in LA, then moving back to Dana, Indiana, then the divorce when mom and I moved to North Carolina, Dad's fresh start was usually comprised of a persona switch-up, while mom's required a change of geography. He had four distinct ones—Prophet, Miami Vice Drug Dealer, Orthodox Rabbi, and Hillbilly. He would cycle through them all, but in the end, it was kind of a combination of the last two.
0: So tell me a little more about how the divorce went down.
1: In summer of 1987, when mom packed the silverware, you know, she and my father had many contentious phone calls from hotel rooms that ultimately led to the divorce and credit cards being canceled. And so when we had no money, mom and I, you know, we were homeless. It was a quick turnaround. One week I was part of this cozy nuclear family in the Midwest. You know training up for my drug trafficking business and riding with my dad on drops and then the next week i was with my mother in a southern culture homeless and being her emotional rock while she navigated this sudden cut off from my dad and by that time you know my mother was dealing with a mean rude tough six-year-old whom my father had expected would be raised in the Midwest. And I was very respectful of my father, but I was not respectful of my mother. So the next six years were spent, you know, her undoing this stoic six-year-old so that I would become a sweet, people-pleasing southerner. While my father had given me full permission and even encouraged me to, you know, emotionally or physically explode on anyone who threatened my safety and security, my mother wanted me to learn how to use manipulation to get what I needed.
0: So your dad thinks he's raising a drug trafficking street fighter and your mom thinks she's raising a people pleasing manipulator.
1: Both of my parents had warped expectations about life and how I would be raised. And because I was eager to please both of them, I shape shifted a lot. You know, overall, while my father's way of raising me was more physically dangerous, my mother's way was more mentally dangerous. This was the difference between the two of them that was so confusing my father's illness was explicit his schizoaffective disorder manifested in loud bold symptoms my mother's illness was more passive and under the surface it was subtly manipulative and often very spiteful my mother took me to therapy at an early age to deprogram what my father had taught me You're just like your father, she'd say, but insinuating that it wasn't a good thing. So in third grade, she had a comprehensive psychological evaluation done on me, quote, to ensure you aren't a sociopath or psychopath, end quote, in her words. My father did not have that concern. He was more preoccupied with how I would learn to navigate the world and people. And my mother was more concerned with what people thought of me. So mom shared this detailed report of her nine-year-old with me. I still have a copy of it. But what's fascinating about this report are her notes on the margin. For every indication of trauma or troubling behavior, my mother was quick to write in a note in the margin blaming it on my father, the divorce, the move, their financial troubles. In other words, she was quick to let me know in print that all of our problems, including any character or personality flaws I developed, were my father's fault. My mother was very vocal in her hatred of my father. He was less direct in his hatred of her. But both of them said to me at different times, quote, Just between you and me, end quote. And then they begin some terrible story that degraded the character of the other. But the just between you and me part was an indicator to me that I was meant to listen well and to keep the secret that they were sharing in that moment. So I carried around these stories that one of them would tell me about the other one my entire life. I was slowly groomed to hate and disavow my father my Indiana upbringing and these earliest years. That was really hard. There's dad in Indiana in this corner and mom in North Carolina in this corner. Who's going to win? Seven months before my wedding, I was beginning to doubt whether both of them could be at the wedding and be content, and even celebrate, so I uninvited my own father to my wedding, which was heartbreaking. After 28 years, I sent him a typed letter cutting him off in what I thought was going to be a temporary radio silence. He died six months later, one month before my wedding.
0: You have been listening to the Breaking Good Podcast, produced by Profound Productions. The intro music is entitled From the Heartland and is composed by Seastock, licensed from Jamendo. For details on all other background music and sounds, visit jdanatrent.com. There, you will also find additional show notes, photos, and more.